Despite what Rick Astley sings, your heroes are always going to let you down. At least at some point. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not, I'm not saying that there aren't exceptional people that uh, they do really well at certain things. It's just that at the end of the day, they're just human. We tend to want to elevate people, you know, put them on a pedestal. We want to imagine that they're not like us, that they have some indescribable quality that, that sets them apart, makes them not just ordinary. And, and we often would imagine that if we, if we could meet them, it'd be a dream come true. Only if you have met some of your heroes, uh, if you've actually had that experience, often it, it's, it's kind of a letdown. Because they're just like us. They have the same foibles. You get a chance to see them. Sometimes it takes a little while, though, for you to actually see your heroes in a true light. Uh, Robert Chisholm, he mentioned this experience that Roger Kahn had. He was a reporter for the New York Herald Tribune during the summers of 1952 and 53, which were some amazing days, I guess, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So 15 years later, Roger decided to write down, he tried, decided to track down those baseball players and see where they were then. And he recorded that in his book, The Boys of Summer. So Chisholm, he, he highlighted one of the saddest parts of the book when Khan encounters the former third baseman, Billy Cox. Tracks him down to the small town of, of Newport, Pennsylvania, where Billy is, was now a, a bartender. That was his occupation. And then the two met up in a bar to talk. And Chisholm writes, it seemed as if Billy spent most of his waking hours in bars. No longer was Billy the slim athlete of 1953. and Half, half of the middle finger on his throwing hand was missing. And then they're meeting, and, and during this ruckus in the bar, Billy gets up and he goes to just go to a pool table. He starts to kind of mutter to himself. And, and Khan then writes down what he was thinking. He says, no one present except myself could have realized that this broad-shouldered, horse-faced fellow tapping billiard balls, missing half a finger on one hand, sad-eyed, was the most glorious glove on the most glorious team that ever played baseball in the sunlight of Brooklyn. Heroes fade. Talents diminish. Faculties decline. And even at our peak, at our hero's peak, they're still just human. They, they may be able to do certain things really well, but they're fallible. They have their time, and then they're out of the limelight. So at the end of the day, no matter who we're counting on, and, and whether we're counting on them for something trivial like entertainment or something more for a relationship, whoever that is, they can let us down just the same way that we fail and let others down because they're just like us. They're just human. And that's true, just as true, for preachers as anyone else. I've had the opportunity to, to be around a few well-known preachers in, in an environment where there were very few people around. It's kind of a neat experience. But even those, the best of those encounters really just sent me away with this, this really clear sense of being underwhelmed. Because whatever idea you have about celebrity preachers, nothing really bad occurred. It just, they were they're just normal. 
just normal people that God has used. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor people that have, have served, uh, whether it's our country or whether it's the church. I mean, we can honor service, but we have to be careful not to depend on humans, to put our confidence in people. Especially not when it comes down to what God's called us to do. And we can do that as Christians, as a church. We're called to a task. We're, we're called to something that's difficult. On, on the one hand, we're called to follow Christ. And then upon following him, we're called to make disciples of all nations. And we could wonder if either of those is possible at times. And we could also be easily tempted to depend on, on super Christians, celebrity Christians, to actually do these things for us and, and, and to inspire us and to do the kinds of things that we need to do. We can look to people in order to do what God's called us to do. And that's why our passage this morning really is very, very helpful. Because it gets, it gets behind the scenes of one of the biggest heroes in the Bible. We get to see Moses as the Lord is calling him to lead Israel out of Egypt. That's one of the the quintessential stories in the Bible about one of the most significant leaders in the Bible. And yet the crazy thing is what this passage teaches us is to not look to human heroes. It directs us to the one true hero in the Bible, to the Lord. See, Even though the passage that we're looking at is very much about Moses being commissioned by the Lord, it's really mostly about the Lord. And it tells us about the Lord, not only of Moses' commission, but of our commission. And so it it really directs us to not put our trust in humans, and rather to put our trust in God and in him alone. So what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see the Lord as he truly is. And that enables us to say with Augustine, God, give what you command and then command what you will. We say that because God doesn't just tell you to do something and then leave you to your own resources to do it, to carry it out. The Lord is the means of our very obedience. So that's what we see in this passage. Exodus 3. You can turn there. It's on page 43 again in the Pew Bible. Exodus 3. We're going to look at the entire chapter. And what we see are three reasons why we can fulfill our commission from the Lord. We can complete our task because the Lord is involved, because the Lord is sufficient and because the Lord is sovereign. That's what we see in our passage. Now, it's true, we've heard that before, right? We've heard those things before. But stories in the Bible, they help us get a look at what that's teaching. We we could hear propositions about God's involvement, sufficiency, his sovereignty, over and over again. But these stories, they help us look at that, see it. And so... We get a look at what is not only a story, again, this is actual history, 
This is what actually happened. It's an encounter in time between a man named Moses and a being named Yahweh, or the Lord. And again, the Lord is the true hero. So let's look at this portrait of our actual hero. And the first thing we see, the first reason why we can fulfill our commission, what God tells us to do, is because the Lord is involved. Now, the first thing you read, it, it kind of throws you, if you've been following along in Exodus, because there's a name change, and there doesn't seem to be any explanation for it. In chapter 2, we were told about Roel, the priest of Midian, and then here it mentions Jethro, the priest of Midian. You've got numerous explanations for this. Uh, some look at the fact that the word translated father-in-law isn't as specific, so it could just mean any male relative who is a relative by law. Um, and others, so they'd say, well, actually, Rawel is the grandfather-in-law, and, and Jethro is the actual father-in-law. Or, Rawel is the father-in-law, Jethro is the brother-in-law, but because Rawel died, now Jethro is the lead of the family, and, and so that's the explanation for it. Or others say, actually, it's just the same person, just with two different names. Whatever is the case, more than figuring out exactly who this is, what we can say is this individual was the most significant person in this family that Moses is now a part of. But even more important than that, you notice that Moses, he's taking care of Jethro's flock. It's not his flock. He hasn't actually gained a flock of his own. He hasn't acquired much here in Midian. And also, now he's, he's in the occupation that the, the Egyptians abhorred, according to Genesis 46. So he is very much acting the part of the Israelite, just like Jacob when he was away from his people. It's as, as Douglas Stewart put it, it's apparent that should he, Moses, ever return to Egypt, he would go as an Israelite, not as an Egyptian. And I'd add he's not going as someone who already has a lot of belongings, a lot of, a lot of blessings. He's going pretty empty-handed. So verse 1 says, Moses led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And that, that terminology of the west side, it's not the normal way you talk about the west. So you could think of this more as the back parts far away from the normal territory where he lived. And it's a wilderness, it's not a desert. You shouldn't picture dunes, sand dunes or anything like that. This is just a place that's uncultivated. And so there's sparsely, there's, there's different things that uh, grow up here or there, but you have to keep the flock moving in order to sustain it. So on this particular day, he had led the flock and he had gone pretty far. On the edge, you could say, of the Midianite territory to this region that's known as Horeb and to this mountain that was later going to be understood to be the mountain of God. It's called Sinai later. So verse 2 then says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So this is another thing that in the Bible people have a lot of opinions about. The angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? Some, some opinions are very strong. Some people point out the fact that this angel is talking as though he is the Lord. 
acting as though he is the Lord. Then there's others that point out the fact that that's what an angel does. By definition, an angel is a messenger who represents the person that they're speaking for, speaking as though they are that person. So you have angels in the Bible that are sometimes human, or messengers. That terminology is used for humans as well as for something not human. This is clearly not human because it's appearing as a flame of fire. I don't think it's ultimately helpful to figure out who the angel of the Lord is exactly because the Bible never actually tells us. There's not a single passage that says the angel of the Lord is X. What is important is to recognize the role that the angel of the Lord plays here. The angel of the Lord functions as a mediator. See, God's presence is something that we as sinners cannot withstand. We need that presence mediated. And so in our fleshly state, if we were to be in God's presence, we would not survive. We would not be able to have, though, a a personal interaction with God without this immediate presence. So that's what the angel teaches us about, teaches us about God's holiness and what's required for us to be in God's presence. Now look again at verse 2. Moses looked And the text then uses the word behold to basically give us Moses' sight. We're looking at Moses' perspective. And what he sees, he sees this bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And so he goes to figure out what it is. You've got to understand, though, Moses has been living in this wilderness for possibly up to 40 years. So what he's looking at is not just this natural phenomenon. This is not a mirage. This is not what some refer to as St. Elmo's fire. This is not something that he would have seen regularly. This is, this is something that was unique. And so he wants to get a closer look at it. And, and as he approaches, the Lord called out to him, the same way that he called out to Abraham, the same way that he called out to Isaac. He says their name twice. So here he says, Moses, Moses. And then Moses gives that Hebrew response, Hinani, here I am. It's what you'd say to anybody. He doesn't know who this is yet. Here I am. And then the Lord warns him about this sacred space that he's now coming close to. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. It's not inherently holy ground. It had been made holy because God and his immediate presence is is there. Holiness is one of those concepts that's kind of hard for us because it gets associated with different things. But it's basically just a description of who God is. A description of what God is like, his godness, as it were. So God is holy. He's the creator, not the creation. And he is set apart in that sense from what is merely creation. He's inherently holy. Creation is not inherently holy, but it can share in God's holiness when God makes it fit for his presence. So created things, created people, they can become holy when God uses them and makes them fit for his use. And so God's presence here made this ground holy. It wasn't like this was some special place. God found, oh, this is a special place where I can be. No, it was holy ground because God was there. And this, just like it was teaching Moses, it's teaching us, you can't just walk up to God. He's holy. Access to God is barred because of our sin. Sinners aren't allowed just to be near to God. And so in order for Moses, who wasn't 
He didn't have any priestly garments or anything. In order for him to show respect, the Lord simply told him, take off your sandals. Show respect for what you are walking into here. And then this strange being to Moses, appearing as a flame of fire, so another way you could translate that, he identified himself. He said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The first father there seems to be Amran, Moses' father. So his father's father, as well as these patriarchs, which is a way for God to point back to these covenant promises that he made to these men. And when, as soon as Moses finds out that's who he's talking to, it says he was afraid. It says that he, he, he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Later on, God is going to back him up on that. In Exodus 33, he says, you, sh- you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses was right to be afraid. But again, God is shielding him from his holy presence by this angel. So the Lord explains to Moses, even though it has seemed like he's silent, and really he had been silent in a literal sense for 400 years. But even though it's seen that way, he's not out of touch. He's he's aware of what's going on. He says in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And like we saw last week, his knowledge is not passive. So he goes on, he says, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Again, he's using language like we heard in in Genesis 11. This This is a way to help simple people like ourselves, like Moses, understand that he is going to take action. And so he tells Moses that he's gonna snatch his people away from the Egyptians. That's the terminology. This is pretty aggressive language for a rescue. And he's going to bring them up out of the land, out of that land in Egypt, to a good and broad land, a spacious land. And then he says exactly why he's calling it a good and spacious land. He says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is probably not just the honeybee honey. It's probably a reference to syrup from figs and dates. But this is just a a natural thing that, that comes from the land. And so he refers to a place where livestock can be plentiful. They can give you those fatty foods, you know, the cheeses, the milk, the kind of sugary foods. This is, this is the foods. He's describing the foods of a good, the good life. Saying that's, that's the kind of land I'm taking you to. And, and it's a spacious land. It's spacious enough for six different people groups. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there's more than enough room for your people. And then he explains why he is, he's really coming to talk to Moses. He tells him, and now, behold, cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Saying, I've heard and seen enough. Now it's time. So you could translate that first word, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring out my people. Notice he says this is his people. The children of Israel are his because he associates them with the promises he made to their forefathers. So Moses, really in how he's responded in in this whole section, he's already demonstrated one of the reasons why we can know that what God 
is asking for, what God's telling him to do, is possible. Because he's now in the presence of God. God's involved in what he's doing. God hasn't just done something through kind of naturalistic means. He has broke into the situation. He is now, a, he's demonstrating himself in a way that is very clear, is miraculous. He's demonstrating that he's involved. He cares about this. He's going to do something. He's invested in what's going on. This is, this is the creator of the universe. That is how Abraham referred to his God. El Elyon, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. So if, that, if this is something that that God wants to do something about, and he's involved in it, you can be confident it's doable. So Moses needed to see that, but more than that, he also needed to see that second, the second reason here for our confidence in this great commission. The second reason, not only is the Lord involved, but the Lord is also sufficient. Now, some people look at the, the next section here, verse, starting in verse 11, and they kind of think that Moses has poor self-esteem. They think that Moses is making an excuse. He's going to make an excuse, but what he says here is spot on. Remember how Moses responded before, and he was that princely Egyptian who was taking the law into his own hands. He was, he was going to help his people. He was going to rescue them. Remember what the, the fellow Hebrew said to him. Basically said, who do you think you are? And now that's Moses' question. <laughs> uh, Lord, who do you think I am? Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's saying, I'm a nobody. I'm just an exiled shepherd. Pharaoh isn't going to listen to me. You know what? He's right. He's not wrong. This is not low self-esteem. This is him being exactly where he needed to be. Notice God doesn't say, oh, Moses, you shouldn't talk like that. You're better than that. You're exactly the kind of person I need. You're that assertive individual who's going to step up and do the right thing. You're exactly who I need. That's not what he says. He basically agrees with him. His response isn't, no, no, no. His response is, you're right, but I will be with you. Same kind of promise he gave the the patriarchs. Told Isaac when he's out wandering around looking for water, fear not, I am with you. Told Jacob when he was leaving the land, the promised land, and, and when he was coming back, he told him, I will be with you. That's what you need to know. Like how Alec Motyer sums this up. He says, Moses' position was, look, I'm not up to the job. You shouldn't have picked me. The Lord's reply was, of course you're not up to the job. I knew that when I chose you for it. The point is not your ability, but mine. In a nutshell, that is how matters stand, and not just for Moses, but for always and in every situation of divine choice and call. The Lord does not call us because of our adequacy, nor is his presence conditional upon us becoming adequate. It is rather promised to those who are inadequate. When we say, but I'm not adequate, the Lord says, you needn't tell me, but I will be with you. He goes on, he says, furthermore, the Lord's reaction was not to promise to make Moses adequate, somehow to transform him into someone who was up to the task. What he did promise was the sufficiency of his own presence. So the Lord's presence is what Moses needed for his sufficiency. 
for his insufficiency, actually. And he was insufficient. The Lord is sufficient. Now, the Lord does give Moses a sign, but it's not one of those signs that instills confidence immediately. This is actually one of those signs, and you see them throughout the Bible, that, that are meant to confirm things after they've happened. So when they've happened, once it's happened, you're going to know that I really am the one that's commissioning you here. And the, the sign in this case is when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. This mountain was far enough away from Egypt that if they reached it and they served God there, the task had been completed. They'd gotten that. So he says, you're, you're going to know when it's happened, basically. And when you're back here worshiping me with the people. Now, if you look at Moses' response to that, it can sound a little brazen because it could sound like he's saying, well, okay, if I do this, because it's translated with the word if. Well, the word if isn't actually there in Hebrew. It's another word usually translated behold, but it's a little bit abnormal use. I think the, the better way to see this is, is Moses is displaying very, very vividly the picture of what's going to happen when he obeys the Lord. So he basically says, okay, watch this. I'm going to the people of Israel, and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They're going to ask me, what is his name? So what should I tell them? Now, based on not only the Lord's response, but the, the cultural context, this is not just a question about a name. I think Dwayne Garrett, he was helpful in pointing out that these Israelites, they've been living in Egypt. And even the patriarchs, I mean, they were thoroughly surrounded by paganism. Abraham had just been brought out of paganism. They have a pagan mindset when it comes to God. <clears throat> so you can imagine just asking this question, what is this God's name? Even just asking the question assumes that there are other gods. Well, what's this God's name? So they have this pagan mindset. <clears throat> These different gods... They were parts of pantheons. You know, they were parts of all these other gods that were, were, going, uh, were doing different things. They had different areas of expertise. They had different areas of, of jurisdiction. So the question, asking this sort of a question, what, it, what is his name? It's really asking, what sort of God is this that, that you represent, Moses? Is this an actual God that can do something about our situation? <clears throat> That's what makes his, his response so... Interesting, because this, this next statement from God is one of the most well-known statements from the Old Testament. When he asks, what is your name, or what should I tell them when they ask what your name is, God tells Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this is, again, when this passage is loaded with things that there are volumes on. People have opinions about, what does this mean? that God is saying, I am who I am. I think, in this case, simple is best. So a lot of times people look at this and they say, well, if this is going to say anything, we have to add a lot to it from the context. Well, yeah, we do have to understand it from the context, but I don't think we need to translate this into something much more than I am who I am. Again, Dwayne Garrett was very helpful in pointing out the grammar. So this is basically, he's saying, he's answering Moses' question. The first I am is, is what you'd say. If somebody says, what's your name? I am Kurt. The second I am is his name. What is your name? I am, I am. And that's what he goes on to say. 
He goes on to say, tell them, I am has sent you. He doesn't say, I am what I am has sent you. I am is his name. That's what he's saying here. The question is, why? what does that mean? What's the significance of saying, I am? And again, it's against the backdrop of these pagan ideas about God that shows you how significant this name is. God is contrasting himself with these other pagan gods. So God, there's no singular function to God. He is. He's not the God of the sun and the sky or the storms. He is. There's also no pantheon with God. It's not like he's the God who has this consort and has these children. And he does not, he's not interdependent on these other gods. He is. Simply is. He's not defined by an activity. He's defined by himself. There's no other way to define God. So even though we, we understand the Trinity, we understand that it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit... This is getting at the, the singularity of God. He is, he is not like the multiple gods. He's unbound by any other being, which is really what the, the first of the Ten Commandments is getting at. Now, with this name, there, there are many different inferences you could make about it uh, using other passages of Scripture, other teaching on Scripture, because th- this name fits very well with God's aseity, his independence, fits very well with his eternality and his infinite nature. It fits with all those things. But in and of itself, this name doesn't mean that. Name basically is is pointing to the fact that God defines himself. He is the uniquely self-defining God. He's not known by a role. He's not known by relationships. So the only way to know him is by him revealing himself to them. So they had to forget all those ideas they had about gods and just know he is. And he's about to to teach them more of who he is by what he does in Egypt. Now, it, it wouldn't make sense to go around referring to God as I am. You know, I am sent me, I am. So he does it once, but then he immediately transfers to this, this name Yahweh, which Best way we understand it is the third-person version of that. Instead of saying, I am, he says Yahweh, which means he is. He is. So that's what he goes on to say. That's Yahweh, though. Just when you, you read your Bible, you, you notice you don't usually come across the term Yahweh. It's not the way it's translated. So Yahweh is the best guess that we have at how to pronounce God's name given here. It's our best guess because the Masoretes who later tried to preserve how to pronounce the Hebrew, specifically chose not to preserve how to pronounce this name. They didn't want anybody to misuse God's name. Uh, that's the way they kind of viewed it, and I, I don't think that they were understanding that idea correctly. But what they did is they would, they would have the vowels for the word Adonai, Lord. They would use those vowels. So they were signaling to anybody reading the text that when they came to Yahweh, they were to instead say Adonai, Lord. Or if Adonai was used with this term, this name, they, were, they used the, the vowels for the word Elohim. So they were say, to say the Lord God. And, and really, the, the, um, that's where the confusion came with the, 
what people refer to when they say Jehovah. It was misunderstanding what those Masoretes were doing. But in English texts, where you find this name, typically how they do it is they would translate Lord in all caps, just like the Masoretes were basically doing, or God in all caps. That's really the name Yahweh. I think it'd be better to translate it, transliterate it like we do with other names. But Yahweh, again, means he is. Yahweh wanted Moses to be clear that this is the way he wanted his people to think about him. He wants them to to no longer think along those lines that were confusing. He wants them to think this way. That's what he says in verse 15. And he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout generations. During the patriarchal time, God was content to teach the patriarchs through a comparison with the chief god in Canaan, El. El was the chief god in Canaan. The Lord didn't refer to himself simply as El, but he referred to himself as El Elyon, the most high El, or El Shaddai, the almighty El. He's making a distinction. You know, the El around here is not me. I am the almighty, the most high God. But now he really wanted his, his people to grow a little bit in this. He wanted them to understand that there is no comparison with him. He is. That's the way they need to think about him. And again, the Egyptians are going to figure that out really quickly as he takes on every single one of their gods, essentially, and defeats them. He is supreme. There is no one like God. He is. Now, the way that God has responded to Moses, it it focuses again on the same thing. When Moses says, who am I? The Lord said, I am with you. That's what you need to focus on. Focus on me. I'm the one who's going to be with you. When, when he asks for a name, he says, I am, I am. You just need to look at me. Don't, don't try to look at these other gods and say, well, can he compete? No, just look to me. He's saying, in both of these cases, he's sufficient. He's all the people needed to know. He's all the people, that needed, all the people needed to look to. So when he tells us to do something, we need to look to him. We need to listen to what he's taught us here and know that he is sufficient. He's adequate. He's up to the task. Now, that's when we think about our lives, when we think about our commission, the same thing is true. We, we've mentioned it before, but we are instruments that God uses. So when we think about, are we up to the task? He's given us a task. We're to follow Christ. We're to to obey him. We're to make disciples. Are we up to the task? We don't look at ourselves. We're not sufficient. It's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. His response to his call was, who is sufficient for these things? We We should be just like Moses. Who am I? We're not sufficient. Paul goes on to say, our sufficiency is from God. So when God tells us to do something, we don't think, well, how am I going to do that? We look to God. God is the reason why we can do it. He's sufficient for what he calls us to do. So because the Lord is involved, because he's sufficient, we can do this task. The third reason we can fulfill our commission is because the Lord is sovereign. Verse 16 Has Moses, he 
God tells Moses, go gather the elders of Israel. Those are the leaders that already were existing in Israel's, among Israel's people. And he tells them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to him. And he's to tell them that the Lord says, I have observed you and what you've done or what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, there's nothing new really. This is a repetition. There is one thing that's slightly different when he uses that word observed. It's a word that's it's emphatic in the Hebrew, but it's also the word that Joseph used for what God was going to do. Joseph used it back in Genesis 50, really one of the last things Joseph says. And there Joseph says that he was confident God was going to do exactly what God says here. And so knowing that they're going to take Joseph's body up and and bring it with them to Egypt, which is what he commanded them at that same point, they had passed that on. Joseph's words were passed on. And and now Moses is saying, go tell him that what Joseph said is now going to happen. What Joseph promised, that's what's now about to happen. And then in verse 18, you start to see God's sovereignty. He tells Moses, and they will listen to your voice. He doesn't say, and if they listen to your voice, or if if that should happen. This is what's going to happen. There's no if. And then he gives orders. He tells tells Moses that he and the elders are to go to Pharaoh and tell him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now... Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, Yahweh, again, our God. Now, some people listen to that and they say, okay, wait, you say you're going to rescue God's people. You're going to take them out of Egypt, but now you're saying just request a three days journey to worship. See, isn't that being a little disingenuous? No, actually it's not. He's setting the bar very low. For Pharaoh. I mean, think about it. all Pharaoh has to say yes to is a three day respite from serving him. That's it. But, but keep in mind that God doesn't have to ask Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't actually own the people. I mean, this wasn't like their enslavement was proper. Beyond that, this is the creator and sustainer of everyone, including Pharaoh. He doesn't have to ask for anything. What he's doing is actually demonstrating just how bad the situation is. Because think about what Pharaoh just has to say yes to. Again, he just has to say yes to three days. Three days of saying, you don't have to serve me, you can go serve the Lord. And this self-made despot is saying, no, 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 God can't even have three days. God's just illustrating how bad this, this ruler is. And he is going to rescue his people. So, this wasn't a gamble. It wasn't like God saying, okay, we're going to try this, see how it goes, and, and, and like, uh-oh, what if, what, if, what if Pharaoh had said yes? Then he has to just, three days out and three days, you know, he's, they've got to go back. It was no gamble. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He was at work in exactly what was happening. So again, he displays his sovereignty. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That, that last part... Uh, really is, it could be translated, and not by a mighty hand. The point that he's getting at in saying that is, this is going to require my taking action. 
This is going to require what he goes on to say. Pharaoh's not just going to let you go. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And again, that's exactly what happened. I mean, this is a summary of the next 10 plus chapters. It tells us exactly what's going to happen before it happens. God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's so in charge, in fact, that he can even use women to plunder Egypt. Don't take offense at that. The women weren't the soldiers, right? The plundering is what you did when you conquered a nation. And yet he says here, the women, your women are going to plunder Egypt. They're, they're going to be the ones to carry that out. He says that the Lord would give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. He was going to cause them to respond favorably to the people so that each woman in Israel shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. He says, you're not going out empty-handed. Your women are going to clothe your sons and daughters in the wealth of Egypt as you leave. That's how the Lord is going to plunder the Egyptians. Again, because he is sovereign. Now, we aren't Hebrews. We aren't Israelites. This isn't directly our salvation, but it does point to it. In fact, everything about this passage is pointing forward. We were in many ways in Moses' sandals when God called us. We could not approach a holy God. God took the initiative. He sent a mediator. So the fulfillment of every mediator in the Bible, from the angel of the Lord to the priests, is fulfilled in Christ, who, as Paul puts it, is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So through Christ, God became involved in our lives, involved in our situation, involved in our slavery. And then he called us, just as he, he called Moses here. He first calls us to follow him, follow his son, to listen to his son. And then upon following him, he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. So just like he, he tells Moses here, go and I'm going to do this. He says, go and make disciples. But he tells us to do that. Christ tells us to do that not in our own strength. Because remember who Christ is. He is Emmanuel. He's the fulfillment of what it means for God to be with us. So when God tells Moses, I am with you, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is with us. That's how we know we can carry out what he tells us to do. Jesus reconciled us to himself by his death and resurrection. So, we could be with God by his spirit. His spirit is with us. Just like there, there's this flaming presence of God with Moses, well, the church experienced the same thing with flaming tongues of fire coming down on God's people. God is with us. And, and, and in many ways, even more dramatically than he was with Moses. Now, why can we be confident? Of this? Why can we say these kinds of things? Why can we be certain that trusting in a man named Jesus 
is actually what reconciles us to God. It's because this man is also God. Jesus, in John 8, 58, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He was making a connection with what God says here. I'm the same person. I'm the same one who said, I am. And, and if you wonder, well, I'm not sure if that's really what Jesus meant there. The Jewish people knew what he meant. They picked up stones to, to stone him for blasphemy. They knew what he was saying. Now, he wasn't saying, you know, I am Yahweh in the sense that Yahweh is always the second person of the Trinity. You know that because Psalm 110 says very clearly that Yahweh says to David's Lord. Yahweh is the name for God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are Yahweh. Jesus is saying there what he's really saying in, in chapter 10 of John, that he and the Father are one. He is God. And, and the way that Jesus talks is why Jude could write in the fifth verse of his letter, now I remind you, I want to remind you, listen to how Jude puts this. Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So just understand what has happened. God became one of us to rescue us. And, and all that we're reading about here in Exodus is fulfilled. It's pointing forward. It's fulfilled in what Jesus did. So Jesus didn't rescue us by means of, of plagues and, and passing through the Red Sea. His exodus was through his death and resurrection. And, and also, even in this text, it's, it's the same way. God promised gifts to his people when they left Egypt. Silver, gold, clothing. He does the same thing when they left Babylon in exile. In Ezra 1, they go with these precious things. They go with gifts. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, that Jesus rose and gave gifts to his people. And you know what? The gifts in each case are used for the same thing. In Exodus, those gifts were later on in Exodus 25, 20, were going to be collected for what? Tabernacle. In Ezra, why are they told to, to get these gifts from the, the surrounding people? To rebuild the temple. What is Paul talking about in Ephesians? These gifts are for the building up of the body, an image used in chapter 2 to talk about how the church is the temple. These are patterns that are pointing to the fulfillment that's in Jesus. So when Christ commissioned us, again, much like Moses' commission, he says that he did it with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what Yahweh is saying when he explains his name. And he also, like he does with Moses, says, go, do something, go, make disciples, not because you're sufficient, but because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's the same truth for us. It's why we can do what God calls us to do. We can accomplish what we've been called to do. We're instruments. We should never Never think that we're more than that. We are instruments. He's going to do his work through us. So we don't look at ourselves. We can do it because he is. 
Not because of who we are, but because who he is. He's involved. He's sufficient. He's sovereign. And, and his sovereignty, I like how Philip Ryken puts it. He says, the sovereignty of God's grace does not make our ministry unnecessary. Right? That, that's what we could think. Well, if God's going to do everything through us, then he doesn't need us. Well, no, he doesn't need us. But that's not what his sovereignty means. It does not make our ministry unnecessary. It makes it mandatory. The work of salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Nevertheless, God uses us as he used Moses to accomplish his saving purposes. So, at the end of the day, we don't need any tricks. We don't need any magic formulas. We don't need any sociological or psychological insights to do what God has called us to do. We don't have to study how churches grow in order to do our task. We don't have to develop a a, a precise formula for how to make disciples because it's not about us. We have to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. And the truth is, that means that there may be some time periods of silence. The trouble we have is in thinking that, well, it's always going to be the same. God's always going to act the same way. There were 400 years of silence before God acted. I'm not saying there's going to be 400 years of silence in our church. But the fact is, is that God does things according to his timetable. What it's up to us to do is not to produce, but to be faithful. So it doesn't matter who we are, it matters who he is He's the hero. And that's also true with our calling just to follow Christ, our obedience in general. When God tells you to do something, he doesn't just say, there, here's what you have to do. Now you figure out how to do it. He enables you to do what he commands you to do. That's what Augustine was getting at. So we could say with Augustine, grant what you command and then command what you will. So that when we obey, we're doing that because God is at work in us so that we will want to do what he tells us to do, and so that we can actually do it. What matters is not us. What matters is him. He's involved in our lives. He is sufficient for what he's called us to do. He's able to do it. And he is sovereign over every part of this salvation that we're a part of. Now, the only thing I need to add is to say something to anyone this morning who isn't on the Lord's side. You know, what should you do? If you're looking at this from the outside, you say, I'm not really following Jesus. I haven't really submitted him. What should you do? You should consider Jesus. Just consider the person that this entire book is pointing to. This is all about one man who is also God. So this is a story about God coming to rescue us from our sin. Just like Moses, we needed a mediator. We could not endure God's holy presence. Were God to just say, hey, come on in, we would die. We needed a mediator to address our sin. That's what Jesus did. God became one of us. And didn't just do that to conquer us. He became one of us and then suffered and died to rescue us. And he rose again. So, what I would tell anybody 
who isn't on his side is stop and consider Jesus and stop running away from him. Bend your knee to him. Believe that he died and rose again to rescue you so that you could be in God's holy presence even now and then all the more one day. Do you know that Jesus? Do you believe in him? Join me in prayer. Father, we we recognize that we we often struggle with obeying. Sometimes it's because of our flesh, in terms of our temptations. Sometimes it's, it's because we're focusing on ourselves. Because we think that because you tell us to do something, we have to pull ourselves up by our back bootstraps and, and figure out how to get her done. Pray that you would help us to see that that is not what you're doing. That you are sufficient. You're involved. You are sovereign. You're the one who will finish this work in us. So when you call us to do something, you give us the strength to do it. So when you call us to do something, help us to start with recognizing who am I, but not to stay there. We would recognize who you are. And that we would obey in your strength. Pray also for anyone here that is not a follower of Jesus. Maybe they, they look at stories like this and they think, wow, these things can't possibly be true. Pray that you would do a miraculous work in them. It may not seem as miraculous to many of us when we have this flaming fire and you speaking to Moses directly and yet when you when you draw us to yourself, when you open our eyes to see the truth about ourselves and you, you convince us that we are sinners, you convince us that, that we need you, we somehow move from being those who hear these stories and hear what you're doing to, to being those who are compelled by it to respond. We know that is a miracle. We ask that you would do that in the lives of those who are here who who are not following your son, who do not know you. They would turn from simply doing and living the way they want to and again begin to to follow Jesus. We ask it because of your grace towards us. Amen.